Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. All around the world today, people aren't getting the intimacy that they crave. This is an interesting paradox when you think about it. On the one hand, modern technology has made us more connected than ever, but we don't feel like we're really connecting with other people. Throw in a multi-year global pandemic on top of that, and we only feel more alone. This is something my guest today refers to as an intimacy famine. We're spending more and more time online, but we're starving for a type of intimacy that technology just can't provide. In this episode, we're going to explore the positive and negative sides of technology for our intimate lives and tips on how we can better meet our needs. This includes tips for successful online dating, such as what to do if you aren't getting any matches, and also what to do if you feel overwhelmed with too many choices. We'll also discuss tips for building relationships that last, the link between sex and happiness, and much more. My guest is Dr. Michelle Druin, a behavioral scientist and expert on technology, relationships, and sexuality, whose work has been featured all over the media. She is a professor of psychology at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, and a senior research scientist at the Parkview Miro Center for Research and Innovation. Her latest book is Out of Touch, How to Survive an Intimacy Famine. In this episode, I'm going to be sharing the first part of my conversation with Dr. Druin, which is all about technology and intimacy. And in the next episode, I'll be sharing part two, which covers Dr. Druin's fascinating body of research on sexting. You definitely won't want to miss that, so stay tuned. Before we dive in, get off the couch and back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can give you the confidence you need. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. Simply sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once approved, you'll receive your prescription in days, discreetly shipped direct to your door. No doctor's visit and no pharmacy waiting line. As I've said on this show many times before, there's nothing sexier than confidence, and Blue Chew can help give you confidence where it counts. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. As a special deal for listeners, you can try Blue Chew free when you use promo code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code PSYCH, to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information, and thanks to Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, Michelle, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks for having me, Justin. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, you've been studying how technology intersects with sex and relationships for more than a decade, and technology has really evolved a lot during this time. And tech also seems to permeate our lives more and more each year. So has this been a good thing or a bad thing for our intimate lives? Does technology make it easier or harder for us to meet our intimate needs? It's a great question and one that I think the jury's still out on mostly in terms of the long-term effects. Short-term, it helps us meet some needs for intimacy. And I would say that those needs are quick and you know, more of a correspondence based, they can sometimes be quite shallow. 
it's amazing with technology that we can keep in touch with such wide social networks and be able to communicate and text and you know give social media comments and likes. So in terms of the diversity of our intimate experiences, it's expanded us. But in terms of our more immersive intimate experiences where we're with someone face to face and we're hugging and touching and maybe even having sex with them, I think technology facilitates physical distance. So we're not as able or willing or convenienced by engaging in those types of experiences. Yeah. So it's a mixed bag for sure. But something that you talk about in your book is this idea of us being in an intimacy famine. And so this has coincided with the rise of all of this technology in our lives. And on the one hand, you know, as you point out, it gives us more diversity in our interactions with other people. We have the potential to connect with a much wider range of people all around the world. But at the same time, we're not getting the same level of in-person interaction that we were before. So can you tell us a little bit more about this idea of an intimacy famine? What does it mean? And why are we struggling so much to meet our intimate needs today? Well, first, let me dispel the belief that intimacy is just sex, because I think when a lot of people think of intimacy, they automatically think of sex. Intimacy encompasses so much more than that. Even physical intimacy is more than sex. It can be holding hands or hugging or sitting close to someone or you know having a hand on their knee. All of those physical acts could be intimate to someone. And then we have emotional intimacy, sharing our feelings, intellectual intimacy, sharing our thoughts, our ideas, our dreams. And even experiential intimacy, doing things with people and spiritual intimacy, you know, there are just many facets of intimacy. When I talk about an intimacy famine, which is coincidental with the pandemic, is this idea that we are feeling continually more disconnected, even though we're more connected than ever via technology. And recently I likened it to a pool. I said, you know, if your life is a pool and the cover is your daily existence. When you are sending those social media messages and text media messages or text messages, you're throwing marbles at the pool cover. And those aren't going to penetrate. Anyone who knows anything about physics knows that those are going to just stay on the surface. And we're having fewer of those bowling ball moments, you know, where we could really throw bowling balls into those pools because we are just not choosing oftentimes to be face to face with people when we could. So the famine exists. We have record rates of loneliness, depression, social isolation, which has been exacerbated, obviously, by the pandemic. But this was a track that we were on even before the pandemic struck, as the technology that helps us communicate with people allowed us to be more physically distant from them. Yeah, so it's this interesting paradox, right, that the more connected we are, the less connected we feel. It's kind of strange. But I really like your analogy about the pool. You know, we definitely need more of those sort of like cannonball moments where we're taking that big plunge into the pool, making a huge splash. And especially after years of lockdown, social distancing, and all this other stuff, there is a lot, I think, of pent up need for that sort of deep connection with other people. And that's something that we've seen come out in our own research at the Kinsey Institute over the last couple of years. And it's interesting if you talk about pandemic-related changes in our interactions with other people, and specifically our sexual and romantic interaction. So one of the things we actually found in our research was that a lot of people tried new and different things in their intimate lives during 
the pandemic. And sometimes these were online behaviors, sometimes they were in-person behaviors. And so when I looked at the data and separated it out by whether people were engaging in more online acts, new for the first time, or if they were trying new things together with a partner, I found that for people who tried new things with a partner, that was linked to experiencing more improvements in their intimate life, in their relationship. But for people who tried more new things online, it wasn't linked to that same level of improvement. And I think it's related to what you've been talking about here, where a lot of those interactions just feel maybe a little bit more superficial, and they're not kind of allowing us to connect at that deeper level. So I'm curious if you've seen anything else like this, whether it's through your own work or personal observations, you know, was technology as much of a lifeline during the pandemic as we, we think that it was, or was it just sort of like a temporary kind of coping mechanism for us? And now we have all of this pent up desire to go back out and, and really interact with the world in the way that we did before. Yeah, well, man, that sounds like a really interesting study. The novel things that they were trying, is this just anything? They were just doing anything online and face-to-face? Yeah, so for the online behaviors, we asked about a wide range of things. This could include sexting, sharing videos, you know, downloading new apps, trying online dating for the first time. So it was pretty broad in terms of, you know, the technological behaviors that we're talking about. And I didn't separate it to look at specific types of technological behaviors. I'm kind of lumping that all into one category here. So it is possible that some forms of technology provided more connection than others, but just that the overall aggregate level, it didn't seem to be offering the same benefits as trying something new in person with a partner. Yeah, well, that all makes sense to me. So a few years ago, I did a study with a colleague of mine, Dr. Brenda Lundy. And like many of the researchers who do work with face-to-face versus online versus phone calls, we found that the people who were in the condition where they had to instant message with a new partner, a new conversation partner, it was a getting to know you experiment, they just got in so many fewer words. <laughs> they they just weren't able to cover as many topics as if they spoke on the phone or if they met face-to-face. The most interesting part of that study, though, was that when they came in, we asked them, you have three mechanisms by which you could meet a new person. What would you rather? Would you rather meet them face-to-face, speak to them on the phone, or would you rather IM them? And a overwhelming majority said, I'd rather do face-to-face. About a third said that they'd want to do IM, and only one person of about 250 said they wanted to talk on the phone. People are very phone averse, and I'm not sure why, because at the end of the experiment, we found that the people in the phone and the face-to-face parts, the conditions, they were equally happy with their interactions. They found them to be pleasing. And we even asked them, you're going to have more time to speak to your partner, which we didn't actually give them. How would you like to speak with them? And many of the people who were on the phone elected to keep talking to them on the phone. So it was almost as if they passed a threshold of fear, maybe, about that type of medium. And once they passed it, they were good. Now, the other thing that I think was really interesting about that study is that for the people who were socially anxious, the IM condition was actually more beneficial to them. They liked it more. They had fewer evaluation concerns. It was a more comfortable place. And recently I was talking with my research assistants who I love, and obviously I'm sure you have a research lab as well. I could do no work without my research assistants. And we were talking about what intimacy actually is. I said to them, you know, I'm doing all these interviews and I just want to know, what do you think intimacy is? And 
a couple of the students weighed in and we came up with this definition that I thought was very interesting. They said, it's going somewhere where you want to share something with someone and feeling vulnerable enough and wanting to feel vulnerable enough to tell them the things about you that you might not show everyone. And some people can get there online and some people can get there only online. They have such social anxiety and fears that they don't really want to do that face to face. And yet some people um, really do thrive. And I think a lot of people in those face to face contexts. I think, has the internet been a lifeline? It has. I mean, we could not have functioned during the pandemic without it. We have been able to do things that would have left our country in a standstill 50 years ago had the pandemic occurred. You and I having this conversation right now, this couldn't have happened without the technology that we're using right now. So it is a lifeline. And I do think it simultaneously has made us really value those face-to-face -face experiences. So your example of the cannonball, I'm going to have to use that. I've been using bowling ball. <laughs> cannonball is so much better. You know, getting those cannonball, it goes with that drip drench hypothesis, which I originally heard about a long time ago when I was reading an article about how stereotypes are portrayed in media. And you can have one strong figure that really drenches you in a stereotype and changes the way you think. Or you could have little drips of a stereotype that are filtered out across many different mediums. So when I think about, you know, how we're going to recover from our social isolation of the pandemic, I think of it in terms of drips and drenches as well. Some people will need drips and that's what they'll be comfortable with. Others of us will want to get drenched. Yeah. I love everything you just said. And, you know, I think your research speaks to the fact that obviously the effects are different for everybody in for example, if you're talking about people who are more socially anxious, you know, they might prefer fewer in-person interactions and more of the online interaction and so forth. So, you know, as with anything, different things work for different people. But I think also a good takeaway is sometimes just pick up the phone and get over that fear of talking to somebody on the phone, because it can be a very rewarding thing that gives you a level of connection that I think is certainly harder to replicate just through a text-based conversation. Now, in your new book, Out of Touch, you offer a survival guide for the future. You talk about surviving pandemics, childhood, growing old, friendships, and romantic relationships. And I think it's a fantastic guide to contemplating the future of everything. But I really want to focus on survival tips for sex and relationships. So let's start with dating. We know that online dating is rapidly becoming the primary way that people meet and that virtual dates are becoming a new part of the courtship process, but online dating is not without its challenges, and one of them is struggling with the paradox of choice. So for some people, there are just too many options, and it keeps them in this endless cycle of looking for perfection or always having their eye out for the next best thing. But the other big issue for a lot of people is that they discover that there are few or no options, and these people just aren't getting any matches at all. So I'm curious for your advice in both of these cases. What can you do if you're not having any luck finding online dates? And what do you do if you have the opposite problem of just having way too many choices? I have been confronted with both of these issues recently. So as I write about in my book, I did an experiment with a person. We set it up on different dating platforms. And this individual was a woman, and she was in her mid-20s when she did the experiment. She was inundated with responses, replies. She 
hundreds and hundreds in just a day. And it was so overwhelming to her that she wanted to leave online dating entirely because she she could not believe how much people were contacting her. And some people contacted her multiple times. She did what I think is one of the winning formulae on these dating apps. She had one with her, one with her friends, one with her dog while she was out doing something active. So she really did showcase a wide range of her likes and interests. She also didn't say a lot about herself so that we can make it equivalent across the three different platforms. But she said enough about herself that implied she was adventurous. She liked to have fun. And I think that that was a, a really great profile. Now, recently, I saw another person's profile. This was a man. And I just met him a couple of weeks ago. And he said, I'm getting matches, actually. But I or they say hi, and then there's nothing. And I was like, what do you mean there's nothing? And he's like, they just never respond. And I looked through his profile and like the woman I spoke of earlier, it looked good. He, he showed himself doing different things. Um, he was witty. He was very smart. So that wit and intelligence came out in the dating app. And then I said, well, if you wouldn't mind, if you let me look at the messages, um, I can kind of see what's happening. And he said, I am actually just saying hello. And then they're, <laughs> they're not replying, even though they matched with me. And so I looked at one of the messages and he said something like, Hey, nice to meet you. Have you had any luck on this app? And knowing what I knew from the experiment I did before, I knew that that's a really common thing to say. And I said to him, you know, you're not making yourself stand out. And by asking them if they have any luck on this app, one that might be too prying to some people, it might not feel confident enough to some people, who knows? So I said to him, well, let's look at someone you haven't, you've matched with, but you haven't said anything to yet. Because at this point, he's lost all hope about this, you know, dating app, even though he had some potential matches in his inbox. So one was sitting with a, a garden structure behind her and the caption said, guess where I am, which is one of, I think, the common things that some of these dating apps have, or guess where the picture is. And I said to him, I think what you should say is something like, it's a beautiful picture. I don't recognize the location, dot, 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 wonderland, question mark. And so he puts this in and within about 20 seconds, he got ding and someone responded. He's like, oh my God. <gasps> and he just handed me his phone. He's like, here, 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 <laughs> please. Can we get a date on Saturday? And I thought, oh, anyway, so I coached him through a couple of other things. So for the person who is having not a lot of luck, I think one of the ways to get some feedback is to actually share with people what you have on your profile and how you're messaging them and get some other people's insight. I don't think this person, this man had ever shared that before. So it was, I think, invaluable input to him. And also he had a woman's perspective, right? I said to him, this is something that I think would be appealing to a woman, you know, the reference to Alice in Wonderland, you know, it's saying it's very beautiful. It's a really complimentary, it's kind of witty and funny. And I think that made a big difference for for him. So get feedback. For people on the other end of the spectrum, know that having to sift through all the noise to try to find the signal is actually making your decision making worse. So the more options you have, the harder it is to actually make good decisions. So decide on a few traits that you definitely want and don't entertain the other options. I say in my book, and I'm firmly convinced that the average person has enough compatible partners in the world that they could go on a date 
with a person every single day for the rest of their lives and still not meet all their compatible partners. And there are more single people than ever before. So you're going to be inundated with choices. So just have some things that you have, write them down on a list. And if a person doesn't meet those, then don't even try to match with them. Don't even try to have conversations with them. And for both parties, whether you're having trouble or you're inundated, I think the best thing to do is move it quickly to a more immersive form of communication. There was a study that came out recently, actually, it it may have been from some people at Kinsey that was showing that online dating people get disappointed from two main directions. One is the way someone looks. And the second is their language and specifically their word choice. And that affected the length of the relationship, the potential longevity of the relationship was how much they liked the way they looked and how much they liked the words they used. And specifically, that also led into how authentic they thought that person was, which also predicted the length of a relationship. So move to more immersive forms, phone calls, video calls, meeting face-to-face, you know, plenty of light, lots of exits, get somewhere safe, but move it there quickly. Yeah, I think that's all great advice. And it's reminding me of this study that I saw a while back. It was an analysis of Tinder messages and sort of average message length that men versus women are sending. And the average message length for men was about 10 characters, right? It's very, very, very short. And I think you're absolutely right that a lot of people are just not going to perceive that as a sign that this person is really interested or invested or wanting to take this to the next level. Now, that goes back to this bigger gender difference that we see in terms of how people navigate Tinder, which is that women tend to be more selective on average up front. And so they will essentially swipe right less. So they'll they'll be much more selective with who they're going to swipe right on. But men tend to be much more selective after they already get their matches. So a lot of guys just tend to swipe pretty haphazardly in the hopes of getting some matches because men on average just don't match as often as women do on these apps. So they have these different strategies. They become selective at different points. And then that can become a little bit frustrating for everyone. But that's a whole other <laughs> conversation about online dating and things we could do to make it better. But I think that's all great advice, especially in terms of, you know, what to include in your profile to make it more appealing and attractive. And, you know, I wish everybody could have access to you to review their profile and tell them what it is that they need to do. I think everyone just needs a second opinion. You know, we are in the era where I do, you know, extensive online scrutiny of almost everything I buy. I will look at a hundred reviews before I commit to a face cream. So I'm really going to be looking at these profiles and I'm going to be evaluating the correspondence to see if this person is a match for me. That's a much bigger decision than a face cream. So I think if you consider these profiles as important, then getting feedback on them seems reasonable. You know, get your friends to weigh in. Is there anything I can be doing better? I know that leaves people quite vulnerable. And I could see in my interaction with this man at first, he was a little vulnerable. But when he got a response, his mind was blown. And I think it gave him a sense of, okay, I see the difference in the way that I had been responding and what you said. And maybe that gives them a model for his future interactions. Yeah, absolutely. Now we have much more to discuss, including whether more sex will actually make you happier and tips for happy and healthy relationships. And we'll get into all of that right after this break. Studies show that as many as one in three men say they don't last as long in bed as they'd like to. 
Fortunately, there's a solution for this, and it's called Promescent. Promescent is a topical spray that boosts sexual stamina through temporary desensitization. Promescent is customizable for your body, and when used as directed, it won't transfer to your partner. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out, and you'll see why thousands of physicians and sexual health providers recommend it. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Let's talk about sex for a moment. You and I both know what the data say. People today across the globe are having less sex than they were in the past, and it's not just because of the pandemic. Sex was on the decline well before that, which is something that has often been discussed in the media as the sex recession. Now, as sex has declined, rates of loneliness and depression have increased, and it's coincided with this intimacy famine that you talk about. So I think that begs the question of whether having more sex would make us happier. So what are your thoughts on that? Can we potentially boost our collective mental health by becoming more sexually active again? I would love to think so, but the empirical (laughs) evidence does not support that. You know, there's so many wonderful things biologically that we know about sex. You know, the flood of endorphins that we get from a touch, the dopamine we get from a touch, the the oxytocin we get when we orgasm and that afterglow effect that lasts about 48 hours that increases bonding with a partner. You have all of these articles on the biology of sex that would really promote it as a cure of all ills, really, right? And yet, when we really dig into the data, you know, Amy Muse and her colleagues looked at that general social serving data, and it's it doesn't appear that having more sex makes people happier. But the even more, you know, nail in the coffin study was an experimental study where they recruited couples in and they said to them, we want you to double your sex frequency. And they then took daily measures of, did you have sex last night? What's your mood? Did you enjoy the sex? And over all three months of the study, the people who were in the experimental group were unhappier. They enjoyed the sex less. <laughs> it did not work. It, it, it created maybe a psychological reactance effect where people are being told what to do, and then therefore they didn't enjoy it as much. But That's the only experimental study I know. Now, I propose that there are much better ways to do that study that might give us some results that are more in line with what I think, and that is to recruit people who are already having issues and want to improve their sex lives. Interestingly, the average couple relationship happiness score, I can't remember their exact measure, was something like a 63 and the top score was a 67. The range on that measure was something like 9 to 67, and the average score was a 63. 
these were happy couples. They were not unhappy couples. They were already having sex on average once a week. And when they were told to double their sex, maybe that was too much for some people. So I think a better experimental situation could be created where we find people who want to improve their sex lives. We get them to negotiate and decide how much they want to you know, have sex. And then they work on it together and see whether or not that has a positive influence. So I'm not giving up on the idea that sex might be a cure for our intimacy famine, plus, you know, just this happiness, general life satisfaction. You know, Brandon McDaniel, he's a family scientist I work with often on research. I call him the father of technoference because he's done a lot of research on how technology interferes with our everyday interactions. And we found that people's bedtime routines affected their bedtime satisfaction and their bedtime satisfaction influenced how satisfied they were with their sex life their whole lives, their relationships. So just going to bed together, having sex during bedtime or some other type of intimacy was something positive for couples. So although, you know, we have this experimental study that says otherwise, I think there's hope for this route. Yeah, I'm not going to give up hope either. <laughs> so <laughs> sex could be the cure-all. Yes, we, we'll, we'll see. We need more data. Yeah, the jury is still out. We we need more data on this and we need maybe some different some different studies with some different methods. And you know, so many people look up sexless marriage. They research it online. They seek counseling for it. And as you look at sexual dysfunction, you have, you know, millions of people who say that they have problems especially as they get older with sexual dysfunction related to sexual desire. If it weren't an issue, we wouldn't have people seeking counseling for it. We wouldn't have people looking up sexless marriage online. And incidentally, the the number one, when you look at Google Trends, ancillary search term that's looked up when you look up sexless marriage is sexless marriage divorce. So I think that's telling. It is. And just the stat to throw out that I've seen, about one in seven marriages in the United States is classified as a sexless marriage. So this is something that is very common. And I think that explains why you see so many internet searches for it. Now, I want to go back to something you said. I'm glad you brought up the bedtime routine thing, because that was actually going to be my next question. But it got me thinking about how, you know, there are some people who don't go to bed together or don't even sleep in the same room because one person might snore really loudly and that leads to poor quality sleep. Or maybe partners have totally different work schedules and so maybe it doesn't make sense for them to go to bed together every night. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for people where, you know, the sleeping together part just isn't compatible. So what are some other ways that they can sort of get that level of intimate connection and, and physical touch that they want and need in their relationship. So nighttime routine, when we measured it, encompassed the time before bed. So it wasn't actually going to sleep that really mattered. It was everything that you did before going to sleep. And we chose bedtime routines because bedtime is usually a convenient time for many couples where they can be free and unencumbered from the demands of the rest of their lives, their work commitments, their family commitments. They can have real couple time. So for the people who snore and sleep in the other room, great, go sleep in the other room when it's time to go to sleep. But enjoy that bedtime routine with your partner as the you know last hours of your day. It can be really, really important to strengthening your relationship and your satisfaction. 
for the people who are on you know different schedules and therefore don't sleep together this was actually a question after dr mcdaniel and i did our work that someone from the hospital brought up to us they said is there any intervention that we should be doing with our shift workers because we have a lot of nurses who we have i think about 13,000 employees in 11 hospitals for where in the hospital where i work and they wondered are these people who are on shift work missing some really important bonding time with their romantic partners? And should we be doing something about it? So what I said is shifting that leisure time to another time where you can be unencumbered by the rest of life's demands is probably essential for those couples. If they're not carving out time at bedtime, carve out time sometime. Maybe it's a date night. Maybe it's in the morning. Maybe it's in the afternoon where you guys just spend some time together. The important part wasn't actually being in a bed. I don't think anyone said that's my favorite part of it. What they said is I enjoy holding hands or talking about our days or for some people it was having sex. And those things certainly are not confined to a bedroom or night. Yeah, I think that's all great advice. So thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm sure that a lot of people who are partnered with people who snore a lot feel a great sense of relief at what you said, that there are other ways that you can accomplish this. So let me ask you one more thing. You talk a lot about tips for navigating relationships in your book. And one that I really like is to flip your mindset about the typical decline that happens in sexual passion. A lot of people think about passion as something that they lose, and they don't think about what they've gained, such as trust and feeling comfortable with another person. So I think that's a helpful way of just sort of flipping and thinking differently about your relationship mindset that I think can go a long way. So what are some other tips or what are your favorite tips for making love last? You have happened upon my favorite quote from the book. <laughs> when I said fire is the floor, not the ceiling, I thought this is my favorite quote because it really reflects a trend that I see in my own life where many of the people that I grew up with, we got married early. I myself, I got married at 23. You probably know statistically that I don't <laughs> have a, a good chance of this lasting as if I would have gotten married in my 30s or my 40s, but we're going on 25 years. So, you know, fingers crossed it persists. But many of the people that got married at the same time as I did, they're divorced now. And divorced couples seem to be more prevalent now in my age group, I'm 48, than they have been before. And when I ask people, you know, what's happened, a lot of them say, I'm just, you know, I wasn't in love with him or her anymore. I love him or her, but I'm not in love with them. And I always thought that was really interesting because I thought, well, what does in love mean, right? So in love if we look at the triarchic model, you know, Sternberg's model, it says that passion is early and then you develop intimacy. Typically, this is the normal way it goes. And intimacy involves sharing feelings and thoughts and everything we talked about. And then you get to commitment as long, you know, the longer in the relationship, the longer you want to stay and you're really devoted to this person. And that is the ceiling. That is what we should all be aiming for. And so flipping the narrative on that so that we are looking forward to feeling, like you said, trust and I want to be with you forever through thick and thin. That's the end goal, not the butterflies, not the way your stomach danced when someone touched you. That's not the end goal. That's maybe nervousness that you felt at the beginning. Making love last, I think, comes down to understanding that if commitment 
is the last phase. You need to do all the things that couples need to do to get there. Relationships with good communication often last. Relationships where people are compatible on some of their core values often last. And so pairing up with someone who has similar core values to you might give you longevity. But communicating through the roadblocks is probably the most important thing because certainly there will be roadblocks because even if someone is compatible with you, that doesn't mean that they are 100% like you, nor does it mean that they meet 100% of your needs. So I think also recognizing, although there's a world out there full of alternatives, find someone who you think, I'm going to make this work with them and then make it work. Because again, you could probably make it work with a lot of people, but if you want a long lasting relationship, which I know some people do not, but if that's something you want, then just choose someone who you could maybe make it work with and then make it work. And it's also possible if you want to have multiple relationships at the same time, you can, where different relationships meet different needs and you can have love present in all of them. Again, different things work for different people. So you can have your passion and your love and all of these things at the same time. They just require different mindsets, different approaches to relationships. And, you know, if you want to be monogamous and kind of keep that spark alive, novelty, as we've discussed on the show before is one of the keys to really getting that spark back and keeping it going. So thank you for sharing all of these sex and relationship tips, Michelle. It was lovely to speak with you about your new book. And I am looking forward in the next episode to talking to you about all of your research on sexting. Me too. Thanks for having me, Justin.